Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yeah, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality IAQ Radio for Friday, November 14th, 2008. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes, we hope, will be participating remotely. Our wingman, Chris Boisel, is at the controls. We have a guest host in the studio for her second appearance, environmental Ann Koalecki. Good afternoon, all. All right. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, on certified indoor hygiene issues, an update from Pete Consigli, the commish, and the roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with the wingman's help, have been updating the IQ.com website each week and adding a blog after the show. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IEQ and IEQ Training Institute. First, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, you can dial 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and simply join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, www.iqradio.com, and follow the link that says go to the show, or you can easily get the show from iTunes. You can also get your IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ council renewal credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting a quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, and or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man at cliffslotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Now for the trivia question. Congratulations to Christine Robinson at AQTS Inc for answering trivia question number 101. The question was, for purification purposes, adsorption on porous carbon can be traced back historically to what year? The correct answer was 1550 BC. The microband trivia question for Friday, November 14, 2008. Name the ancient scholar who, perceiving the health risks of working with sulfur and lead, devised a face mask from an animal bladder to protect workers from dust and lead fumes. Okay. 
Today's guest is Dr. Dietrich Weil. Dr. Weil is a certified industrial hygienist with a doctorate in industrial hygiene and occupational health. He has 35 years of professional experience performing industrial hygiene and indoor air quality investigations. Dr. Weil is also a semi-retired professor from the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Public Health. He continues to consult, teach IAQ courses, and provide expert testimony nationwide. He has attended the Certified Mold Remediator, the Certified Indoor Environmentalist, and numerous other training programs and conferences and seminars that stay abreast of the latest developments in IEQ, disaster restoration, and building science issues. As most of our listeners know, Dr. Weil is also a frequent contributor and technical director for IEQ Radio. How about his intro music, Chris? Good afternoon, Dieter. I think we're also going to bring on Radio Joe as well. Joe, are you there? I'm here, yes, indeed. Okay. Joe, do we got you? Got me, Cliff. Perfect, perfect. Okay, well, great. And we've got Annie here as well. So I'm going to start off with the first question, Dieter. You know, I think most people have an impression of what a certified industrial hygienist is, and they probably think they clean teeth in factories. Is that correct? Uh, Well, (laughs) that was... (laughs) A lot of people thought that for the longest time. In fact, I can tell you a story of a good friend of mine, um, whom you also know. In fact, I can mention his name. Yeah, please tell us. wrong with it. Larry Keller, he was on here before. Right. And uh, they had a paint, when he worked for PPG, they had, I think, a paint factory in, like in, in Germany or in Italy. And he came over as an industrial hygienist. The first place they showed him was the men's in the ladies' room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Joe, do you... Do you... Um, I don't know. I, I Until today, I don't like the name, even though we have gotten accustomed to it. And unfortunately, I don't know a better name. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and, and you're an environmental uh, specialist or environmental engineer or something like that uh, would describe it a little bit better. All right. Joe, would you like to ask the next question? Dear, I, I'm just... Uh... You know, you and I had talked about doing this show, and, and one of the reasons was that we we do a lot of training together and we talk with people who are going to become indoor environmental professionals or uh, consultants and contractors and so on, and we, we see a lot of problems. And I think one of the problems we see pretty commonly is that Americans have problems with the metric system. I'm wondering if you can give us a couple tips on how to... Uh, how to make some conversions from metric and you know to metric, et cetera, and uh, maybe some tips on how we can understand or relate better to the metric system. Yeah, this is one of those unfortunate things. It's just as unfortunate as the fact that some people decided to drive on the left side of the street, and of course we drive on the right right side of the street. And um, unfortunately, we are stuck in this country with. Uh, a, a, a horrible uh, system and the metric system once you know it once you learn it from you know from grade school and 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 uh, university it's it's so much easier than with these gallons and foot pounds and cubic feet and, uh, and uh, short tongues and all of that but um, uh, there are a couple of things when when you hear uh, for instance uh, we have heard the word centimeter that centi means one hundredth of a meter, and a centimeter is like in round numbers approximately half an inch. It's not direct, but approximately. Uh, once in a while you hear, you don't hear that that often. You hear a millimeter, uh, that is fine. So a millimeter is a thousandth of a meter, and a meter is, among friends, approximately a yard. It's a little bit longer, but who cares? We just want to get a feel for it. 
We hear, and it is quite frequently used, we hear micrometers, and micrometers are used by aerosol scientists to describe, to measure the size of a, uh, of a particle which is suspended in air. Hence the name uh, uh, an aerosol or an aerosol physicist. Um, I don't want to go into the, 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 the nanotechnology. Now we are talking about billions and so on and more. Um, we heard a decade, and yes, indeed, deca means 10. That all comes from Greek, from the Greek. Hecto means 100. In Germany, where they brew beer, they, um, they measure the output of beer in hectoliters. <laughs> so that is good. We hear a kilogram or a kilometer. A kilometer is 1,000 meters, and a kilogram is 1,000 grams. So we have this one. There is also mega and giga, but we really don't need that in industrial hygiene. That's for computer people in the gigabyte. We know what megabytes, and we all know that. So basically, yeah, we have centi, milli, and micrometers. That is the hundreds, the thousands, and a million. And we have deca and kilo. That's usually what we hear, uh, kilometer and kilogram. So that's, yeah. It, and, of course, you can convert these back and forth uh, between the metric system and our system. And yesterday I was playing a little bit around on the computer, and I found a, a site which is uh, it's unbelievable. It, it, it's called unit conversion, one word, unitconversion.org. And I printed out something. They gave me like six <laughs> six pages of, uh, of something. I have it somewhere on my desk, desk here. Um, going back to old Greek and uh, um, uh, Roman measurements and, 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 and Russian that they used years and years, hundreds, thousands of years ago. So that is a good site if you want to convert something to something. Okay, thanks for you that. You have a little uh, converter as well, Dieter, don't you? The, the converter yep. that we... Maybe yes, I can get that have, up on the website for the listeners. Yes, I have, uh, I have given that one out, and it is completely legal. I got it from a guy in uh, Europe originally. It, a, a Swiss guy put that together, conversion chart, and uh, it's completely legal. You can download that anytime you want to. Sometimes when I sent it to former students, they had a problem because there is a dot exact at the end, and many of the computer filters, don't let that one go through. So that is a problem. But that is a neat little, uh, and I'm, I'm clicking on it right now, uh, a, a neat little um, uh, conversion program from cubic inches to cubic meter and cubic yards and uh, cubic centimeters and so on. We'll try to put a link up for listeners on, on the, on the uh, IAQ Radio website. Cliff, I'm going to turn it back. Thanks for having me on, and maybe no bring it back at halftime. Will do. Okay. Thanks for that website, Dieter. I think I've actually been on it. I have a question now. What is a permissible exposure limit? Well, uh, that is it. It has quite a bit of history behind it. Uh, there are two uh, names attached to basically, among friends, the same thing. Many years ago, in the 40s, the ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, published the first TLV list, the threshold limit value. Those are numbers which are believed that a normal American worker, not child as a worker, yeah, that's gone, a normal American worker, you know, between the four, uh, uh, ages of 20 and 65, can be uh, exposed repeatedly, day after day, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week for a lifetime, comma, without adverse effects. I happen to have somewhere in my mess over here the first TLV list that ever was published, and it was somewhere in the 40s. Now, uh, in 1970, we passed the Occupational Safety and Health Act. And, uh, of course, <laughs> the Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA, they were created to protect whom? The American worker again. Now, they needed numbers, 
speed limit, so to say. They needed limit values, which have been used in industry for years. We had experience with it, and we knew if you expose somebody to X amount of X, Y, Z, nothing is really, you know, you don't have to call the undertaker or nothing is really going to happen. Now, uh, of course, OSHA couldn't develop their own. They, the other ones had already 30 years of history behind them. So they took the TLVs, the threshold limit values, originally published by AC, TIH, the American Conference of Government Industrial Hygienists. They took those into the OSHA standard, but there was a problem. HCGIH had copyrighted the, the, the abbreviation TLV, threshold limit value. So they took basically the same numbers and called them permissible exposure limits. Now, they have changed slightly over the years, but by and large, the, uh, the permissible exposure limits, TELs from OSHA, are pretty much the same as the TLVs, the threshold limit values, from the ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Dieter, how that was a long answer for a short question. That's all right. Well, I'm going to ask you another short question, and if you want to give us a long answer, that's fine. What's the difference uh, with this other term called short-term exposure limit? Well, um, I think carbon monoxide is a very good example for that. There is a, a limit... I'm pretty sure it's 35 parts per million ppm, and we'll talk about that one later on. 35 ppm for eight hours a day, and um, that should be the average. Now, there is no workplace anywhere in the world, really, where there are yeah, 35.0 ppm in the air for eight hours. It starts out in the morning with maybe one or two or zero, and it builds up due to a, a, a chemical process or a process in a factory, whatever it may be. Now, if you get a short-term exposure, let's say to 150 parts per million, or let's go even, let's go even easier, 10 times higher, 350 ppm. If you get exposed to 350 ppm of carbon monoxide, let's say for five or 10 minutes, and then you go into a place where it is, again, below 35, you absorb a little bit of carbon monoxide, but it will take quite some time to get that into, at these levels into your bloodstream. So the average should be still, again, 35 ppm or less, And uh, even though there was a spike. So you have to compensate and put that person into a place where it's, let's say, 10 ppm or 5 ppm, that the average over the day is uh, 35 ppm. There are several chemicals for which we have these excursion limits. You know, one thing that I'd like to stay on carbon monoxide because you had mentioned it. Uh, I remember taking uh, my CIE course, and you were one of the instructors uh, in the course, and you told a fascinating story about these two scientists who... uh, I guess, experimented on each other. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, could you tell that to the listeners? I think it's fascinating. Uh, yeah, that is Henderson and Haggard. And I'm getting up over here. That book got to be somewhere over here on my shelf. It is called, there it is, Noxious Gases. It's Dr. Henderson. I think they were both PhDs. They published a book which is still a fantastic, fantastic reference. And I'm looking over here. This one, I have the second edition. is 1943. There is one even older than this. And these guys uh, looked at noxious gases from sulfur dioxide and ozone and carbon monoxide and all those nasty things. And <laughs> they, they literally exposed themselves and uh, one was sitting on the chair, and the other one was exposing him and asking him questions and trying to determine when he's going to keel over or fall off the chair. It's unbelievable. Impossible to do today with the regulations we have on, uh, on, on human volunteers. Well, thank you. That was just, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's such a science, uh, you know, how far people will go. Can you tell me what a work site analysis is? Well... I, can t- I, I don't think it is defined as such, 
But if I, in fact, I was just called this morning, there is a company which is for sale, and the buyer wants to have a survey done. And I said, I don't know what you want, guys. You know, I, I can do a survey for $100,000, and I can do one for 1000 bucks. So whatever. But basically, this would be an extensive uh, endeavor going into a factory, and you would look at, 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 at housekeeping, at ventilation, uh, uh, exposures to chemicals uh, over in there, uh, uh, noise, lighting, uh, tripping uh, uh, ladders, and so it's a huge. I mean, to do, if if you were to ask me to go to a normal little factory, not not somebody like General Motors, but you know, 30, 40, 50 employees, boy, I can spend quite some time if somebody wants to know what is going on in that place. Okay. Um, Can you provide examples of when the field of industrial hygiene has been right in its thinking? I didn't quite understand it. Uh, can you repeat the question, please? Sure, I'm sorry. <clears throat> can you provide examples of when the field of industrial hygiene has been right in its thinking? And can you provide examples of when it has been wrong in its thinking? I, I still don't quite... Are you asking, uh, are, are there situations where uh, mistakes were made in industrial hygiene? Yes. Uh, well, yes. And certainly completely unintentional. I mentioned the old threshold limit value test uh, uh, table, uh, TLVs, from 1940s sometime. They're the exposure limit for vinyl chloride at that time was a thousand ppm today it's one so they didn't at the time they didn't run the tests because they didn't really know how to do the tests that has something to do with cancer we learned that much later so periodically these exposure limits should be reviewed and adjusted accordingly you know going back you know, asbestos has just become such a, a, a huge issue. Do, can you provide any input on how industrial hygiene factored into this? I mean, did they realize asbestos was a problem before the public did? Or, Well, yeah, I, there, there were problems. But here are a couple, a couple of problems with the original uh, exposures to workers. It first was believed that an asbestos fiber is an inert fiber. It's an inert uh, chemical, if you want to. Uh, it's an inert material which is made by Mother Nature, not by the bad boys somewhere in Germany or in the United States or Russia or wherever. And it was inert, and they said, hey, this is an inert little particle. If you inhale it, bang, nothing is going to happen. And initially, that is exactly what happened. They used the material. They found, I don't know how many uses for that for, for asbestos, I mean, it's just unbelievable how many products became better by being, let's say, reinforced or incorporated with uh, asbestos fibers. Mm -hmm. And before something really happens, there is a time delay, unfortunately. It's not like carbon monoxide or sulfur dioxide. If I expose you to sulfur dioxide, you know instantly right now that you were exposed. With asbestos, you inhaled it. It was deposited in the lung. Uh, there was a, a time lag between 15 and 20 years before the disease really became uh, apparent. Okay. What sort of methods have you in your career used to, to get a workplace equal to or below a permissible exposure limit? Well, uh, I... I Obviously, I start with and I take a look at the chemicals. Let's say uh, chemicals right now, and we can also add heat stress and we can add uh, a noise to it or so. But let's say stay with chemicals. I would like to know which kind of chemicals uh, uh, are used in the processes. I'm not only interested in the final product. Usually, the precursors uh, have higher uh, vapor pressure and may be nastier than the finished product. And uh, perhaps polyurethane is, is, is a wonderful example 
a polyurethane foam or uh, we, we sit on it, all our cars on the inside, that is all polyurethane foam of one kind or another, it's, it's, it's inert. There is nothing happening with it. Uh, and uh, the, the precursors to make that, uh, you got to watch them. And they are, they are a heck of a lot more irritating uh, before they react and make the final polyurethane. So that is uh, uh, one of the things I would do. Uh, I used uh, um, sniffers, uh, VOC sniffers. I just used them in a VOC, volatile organic chemical uh, uh, instrument. I can go around with it and can maybe find areas where there are emissions from some kind of organic chemicals. I can't get an analysis, but I get a feel for what is happening, whether it's high or whether it is low. There's a couple of other good things to use in, an, in a survey. It's called a human eye, and you look around and see whether the housekeeping is there and uh, whether ventilation systems are maintained and, uh, and, and so on. And another in, uh, a very good instrument to use is the human nose, which is actually the only instrument that we have to, with which we can measure uh, vapors and smells. So that is part of it. Um, and you know... If you go into a shop, if you go into a store, the minute you walk through the door, or even a restaurant, you know whether it is a greasy spoon or whether it is a nice one. You see that almost instantly. You say, hey, this looks nice over here. It's clean, it's orderly, and so on. And the same thing happens really to me, and I'm doing this for 40 years now. You walk into a workplace, and you kind of get a feel the minute you walk through the door of what is going on. Now, depending on how much time I have or how much money I want to spend or my client wants to spend, I can take air samples, compare those air samples to the permissible exposure limits, and I use the PELs rather than the TLVs, the threshold limit values from ACGIH, because uh, it's, uh, OSHA, is, OSHA is my boss. It's, it's their numbers which I will be using uh, by uh, uh, identifying or, or characterizing a workplace. What is required to become a certified industrial hygienist? I, it may have changed slightly. When I took the test in 18-something, <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was in 72 or something like that. And um, at the time, you had to have a degree in sciences from an accredited university. In addition, you had to have five years of experience. And I think in the original guidelines, it says under the supervision of a certified industrial hygienist, which wasn't always possible because there weren't a heck of a lot of people around at the time. Mm -hmm. And so you had to have five years of experience. Then when I took the test, the test was two days long on a Saturday and a Sunday. And I tell you one thing, on Sunday at 3 o'clock, you were exhausted. <laughs> Literally from 8 to 12 and from 1 to 5 each day. And I don't know how many hundreds of questions there were. So uh, once you pass that test, you were, quote, a uh, certified industrial hygienist. Dieter, is, is there like a, you know, like doctors, you know, do no harm? Is there like a primary mission for industrial hygienists? Uh, yeah, we have a code of ethics. Um, and uh, that is, you know, have, hey, do no harm is a good idea, yes. Um, yeah, report what you are seeing. Uh, don't lie. You know, that's, that's, that's good advice I can give people. I said, oh, I give them a good report. I, I just don't tell them that I found that. Uh, that will catch that will catch up with you, mm -hmm. and you, you're not really doing anybody uh, a, a favor doing that. It is, it is on, on day one it's okay, and thereafter it's going to be garbage, and you're going to get caught. You shoot yourself in the foot. That certainly is not you know, Report it the way it is, and uh, try to do it as professional as possible, according to the rules of the trade on how to take samples and how to calibrate pumps and and how to report data, and the chain of custody, and all of those things uh, uh, are part of a good report, and uh, it should be followed. Okay. Well, Dieter, I think what we're going to do now is we're going to pause for halftime, and if you just hang on with this, we're going to uh, get an update from 
Pete Kinsigli on what's going on at upcoming event, and then we'll get back to you for the second half of your interview. Good. Hello, Pete. Uh, let's see. Uh, Here's the commission. Hey, good morning, Cliff. Hey, Dieter, how you doing? Good. Well, IAQ, IAQ Radio listeners, it's been a while since the commission's been on there, and thanks to Cliff and Joe giving me an opportunity to uh, to come on and give you all a little update on uh, what the RAA uh, Donnybrook League has been up to. Um, as uh, many of the regular listeners recall, the RAA started uh, these Donnybrook-type debates about two years ago, and uh, we had three debates uh, that the league was discussing, which were the key issues uh, to the members. And uh, two of them uh, had ended, and the third one is kind of coming to a culmination next week in uh, Baltimore's Inner Harbor at our uh, annual fall co- restoration conference. Um, the drying debate uh, had uh, kind of come to a head um, uh, at the end of last year, and uh, this past convention in March we had brought the scoping and pricing debate to uh, to an end. And now... Really, what looks like it's shaping up is, uh, is maybe one of the most contentious of all the debates and possibly the most important to the members is uh, what we call uh, choosing a focus debate. Um, is the focus of a restorer should it be concentrated on uh, primarily dealing uh, with insurance vendor programs or more marketing to the end user? And uh, I think certainly the, the listenership of the I, uh, IQ radio, uh, uh, you know, there's a more of an, that kind of an end user uh, uh, kind of uh, input, if you would, and um, so they'd probably be of interest to them. So uh, let me just kind of give you a little rundown of, uh, of what's coming up for the debate. Uh, we're kicking off the debate with a uh, keynote presentation by two ladies, uh, second-generation women of restoration, um, and uh, they they asked the question, uh, why can't you do both? And uh, they, they're going to give a, a dynamic presentation on uh, the pros and cons of, uh, of either focusing on either one or possibly integrating both serving both the insurance vendor programs and at the same time also being able to uh, to do end-user marketing. Uh, Jackie Carpenter from uh, Ideal Drying in San Francisco and Kerry Jones of uh, Utah Disaster Cleanup. And uh, their dads, uh, respective dads, Butch Carpenter and Danny Jensen, are really two of the real pioneers in the industry and, uh, and good friends of both Cliff and mine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, what's really shaping up to be the pro- probably, uh, it could possibly steal the show, uh, we've, we've, uh, we've, um, marketed as the cage match and um with michael hosto from uh the restoration forum and the 1-800 board up that's uh going to be uh, taken on paul gross from code blue and uh paul uh initially helped start the counterpoint uh to, to the end user argument uh a year ago before we could actually get a team in there to actually defend that position and uh he wrote wrote a position saying why he thought uh the loyalty of the restorers would be best served by dealing with the guy whose signature is on the check, which a lot of times is the insurance company. And Michael now is shooting back, and uh, we just recently released a, uh, a position paper on that, and he's going to give the counter-argument. We actually have a guest referee coming in for that one, and we're, we're not going to tell you who that is. Maybe we may have a little post, uh, post-Donnybrook post wrap-up at a future show clip. That would be great. Maybe we can sure. bring the contestants on. Absolutely. We'd like to uh, do that. That would be great. Now, another another uh, big highlight and something that uh, uh, I've been an advocate for is really to have more international involvement uh, in our association events, and we've been doing that for a few years. And this year we have an international panel. We're going to have some uh, some uh, the Brits over there, and uh, and uh, Billy Lakin is going to be moderating that panel. And uh, we have uh, we have some people from the UK doing a series of talks. We also have uh, my buddy Ashley Esterby from down under as a very unique. Uh, networking model uh, they'll be given the Aussie perspective and Jason Twig from uh, from New Zealand will be given the Kiwi perspective so we're 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 looking at that uh, to 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 be fantastic that kind of wraps up the morning of uh, the event the first day uh the afternoon is going to be the highlight of round 3 of the of the choosing a focus debate with uh, Sam Bergman taking the end user captain in that team and Craig Kershmeyer uh who uh after Paul Gross uh, in the first round and second round, uh, Craig uh, came in and took over the lead and, uh, and wrote really a very uh, intriguing paper on uh, how to be uh, 
serve ethical insurance companies and be uh, an ethical uh, vendor. And I think um, the conflict of, it, of ish, uh, conflict of interest really is kind of the key point, the key sticking point. How do you define who the ethical companies are to work with, and is it a conflict of interest if you're basically want to market directly to the to the end user and also be on an insurance vendors list. And so I think that's going to be interesting. What they brought into play is a key point in the uh, RAA Code of Ethics. Um, there's a key point in there which says that uh, under if you're a member of the RAA and if you're going to work for an end user and you're also on that insurance co- their insurance company's vendor program, you have the duty to disclose. And so not, so that that's going to be debated. And Phil Rosebrook, Jr., of course, is the moderator, and Phil's done a terrific job, and he'll be moderating that. Now, as we kind of go into the wrap-up, uh, we have uh, uh, a little follow-up on both the pricing and marketing, um, uh, the pricing and drying debates, and uh, we, we have what seemed to be broken out as a, we're, we're billing as a transatlantic melee. One of a long-term member uh, uh, from the U.K., uh, Jeff Charlton, uh, wrote a paper uh, kind of contesting uh, the fact that uh, many of the members think that the industry uh, in is, is maturing in, in a state of growth. He kind of has a position, has taken a position that um, the industry is in a state of decay and is uh, too much potential influence by the insurance companies. And uh, so he's written a paper on that, and uh, Tim Cordell wrote a competing argument to that. And his key point is is that it's not the, the industry that's in decay, it's certain companies that are in decay. And uh, as, as Tim's fellow team member, Daryl Paulson from California, is going to take on Jeff, and we build that as a transatlantic melee. We have two follow-up uh, international kind of speeches uh, in reference to drying. Um, one is going to be uh, um, uh, uh, a lady named uh, Kay Goff uh, from Australia, who's a real pioneer out there in drying. She's going to talk about the stadium industry of uh, drying down under. And uh, thanks to Kelly Cressy, she helped uh, recruit the real pioneering uh, Canadian member who's going to talk about the use of heat drying in, in the Canadian market, Mike McCabe. And also Brandon Burton from uh, from uh, Dries has collaborated with uh, Chuck DeWald uh, the third, and uh, they're going to further uh, present some information that uh, that they've collected over the last year in their collaboration on uh, different drying techniques from their research in their respective facilities, what works and doesn't, and they're going to present that information to the membership. And that wraps up day one. And uh, just a short little comment, and I'll turn it back over to you, Mr. Z-Man. Uh, day two. Um, is uh, uh, the REA this year is rolling out the concept called the Unconference, uh, our environmental conference on day one is going to uh, preview this in the afternoon of their first day, or their one day of the conference, and then the, the uh, afternoon of the second day, the Unconference is a, is a, is a, is a, con- a concept where um, we have a professional facilitator that's actually going to help with this, uh, where you don't actually um, uh, have a preset uh, agenda. You let the members decide through a process what the issues are and what they would like to see discussed, and you uh, bring those uh, you bring those to the through a, a logical discussion, and then you set up your workshops, and uh, it's called the unconference, and and we're rolling that out, and we have we're really excited about that. It's only a few years old in other industries, but it's it's kind of something that's on the on the upswing. Uh, in the morning of uh, before the unconference, one of the really hot topics that uh, through the unconference concept that we're allowed to put in there are the uh, Denver indictments. And uh, we have a special attorney, Phil Fox, from the D.C. area, who's coming in, is going to talk about white-collar crime. And um, and we have an insurance adjuster, Peter Croser, and, of course, uh, Marty King and Les Cunningham. Uh, we're going to weigh in on that, too, on all the cost accounting issues that uh, that are surrounding uh, invoicing and wholesale discounts and markups and the duties that you have if you're on insurance vendor programs, possibly to disclose uh, what your hard costs are. So that will be a very interesting session, and our executive director, Don Manger, is going to moderate that. And the one last thing on there is we have uh, the Restoration Industry and Higher Learning Connection. And um, the Robert Cox uh, from Purdue University last, last year gave a presentation and uh, on their disaster restoration program, and he's going to be introducing to the industry uh, Randy Rapp, their Ph.D. Uh, professor who's the chair of, the, of that department. And, um, and also uh, uh, Ed Jones from uh, Code Blue is going to talk about some of the stuff that they've been working on in the Wisconsin area, the connection with the local uh, community colleges to, uh, to develop uh, programs around restoration and use that as, a, as recruiting for restoration companies. And uh, companies like uh, Craig Kirschmeyer in Wisconsin have actually been working with that too. So the academic connection to restoration, I think, is a, is a big thing for the future. So that's, that's what we got on, on Slate. And... Um, and uh, we'd certainly uh, certainly love to uh, to have some kind of a follow-up show, and we can kind of let you know the outcome of uh, some of these uh, contentious debates that are taking place. And thanks for the time. 
on the commission's corner. I'll turn it back to you, Z, man. Thanks. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for the update, and I'm looking forward to the conference. I'll be there, and uh, I understand it's going to be pretty well attended. I think over 300 people, so uh, it should be well done. Okay, well, let's get back to, to Dieter. Dieter, one of the things that you mentioned... I'm here. I'm still here. Perfect. One of the things that you mentioned in the first part of the interview is that you took your certified industrial hygiene examination you thought back in around 1972 and uh you know now we're we're in really a bad economic time and i'm just wondering what you think the economy what effect that's going to have on industrial hygiene well i i i i'm afraid to say that it, it probably doesn't help you know industrial hygiene safety in many instances incorrectly so, has been associated, oh, it only costs, uh, it costs a hell of a lot of money and we don't get a heck of a lot out of it. On the other hand, I know of many, many safety programs which all of a sudden clicked in and uh, workers' compensation claims went down and insurance uh, went down. I still think it is a wise thing to do it right. And uh, it's, you certainly will notice that on the, on the first time you get sued, because now it gets expensive. And uh, we, we are talking of tens and thousands of dollars uh, that 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 yeah that are being claimed there, if not millions. So I don't know. I I just got a uh, in fact I think I emailed that to you from the local American Industrial Hygiene Association. I got a flyer, and a couple of guys from Washington are speculating what the new administration is going to do. Of course. Uh, they don't know exactly what is going to happen, but they know the players and they know generally the attitude of people who are in charge. So they have a couple of uh, interesting um, uh, observations over there. Um, I don't necessarily think that the Democrats are more for workers' health than the Republicans. That has been had been said before, but uh, I don't really think we, we, we really have proof of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey, what sort of issues or on-site challenges do certified industrial hygienists frequently encounter? Well, one of one of the problems, particularly today, is you know they said, "Hey, uh, this guy is going to. He is an industrial hygienist. He is telling me I'm the plant manager on how to run my plant." He is not really a whatever mechanical engineer or chemical engineer or something like that. And uh, yeah, what does he know? He doesn't know about my problems. My my bottom line is that the numbers are not red, but that they are green when I'm done every day or every month or every year. So that is that is one of the problems. Um, when I started this business, consulting, going into factories, uh, taking air samples. Most people thought that I was an OSHA inspector, or I was directly connected with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And um, they, they, they didn't know uh, that this was a profession by itself, and they thought that, um, yeah, that something other is happening out there. Dieter, let's talk a little bit about um, some expert witness work that that you've done. Uh, what was the most interesting case in which you served as an expert witness? Uh, God, there are so many. I would think you asked me that question, and I don't really know. There, there were a bunch of things. Um, they all, that is the beauty with, with, with my background. You know, I know how mattresses are being made. I know how coal is mined. And I was in chemical uh, uh, places. I, it's just uh, in, in forgeries, in, and uh, so uh, it's it's quite quite a bit of exposure. And <laughs> no pun intended. I mm -hmm. had I, I did have that too, but um, probably some of them had something to do with asbestos, um, where plaintiffs were exaggerating their exposures. You know, I, I change the brakes on the family car several times a month. You know, you know the guy's lying. Mm -hmm. um, I was involved in another case where somebody uh, claimed uh, uh, exposure to 
uh, a chemical that, quote, chewed up his lung and he couldn't do anything anymore. We put a private investigator on him and we saw him play tennis for three hours in 100 degrees uh, weather. And he was looked very good on the golf course, too. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is unfortunate that this is happening. They're taking advantage of the system. I'm 100% for compensation. That's what we have workers' compensation for. But keep it honest, and uh, I have no problem with that. We pay for it, and if you get hurt on the job, you should be compensated. No doubt about it. Are you an equal opportunity expert witness, or do you have a preference of working for plaintiffs or the, de or the defense? Um, that's an interesting question, and uh, I... I, I take any case with which I'm comfortable. I have been on very few defenses, and 95% of the time, plaintiffs, 95% of the time I'm on the defense. And that has, and I don't know how that happened. I think I know how it happened, but I've never gotten any phone calls from somebody else. I only get it from lawyers and said, hey, we need somebody that may have something to do with my paper trail. Uh, you know, they have any, anything that I say under oath, uh, you can find somewhere. And um, then a couple of law firms uh, who are representing um, the plaintiff, uh, yeah, if you, if you testified once for the defense, you lost your virginity and you're not good for them anymore. Mm -hmm. So that is usually the way that works out. But I find myself, yeah, 95% on the time on, uh, of the time in defense. I suspect that with your long and, and vast experience that you've uh, come up against uh, multi-chemical sensitivity on multiple occasions. Uh, any comments on that? Well, I know through a couple of friends quite a bit about this. And... Uh, I know a good good friend of mine. He's defending uh, that for large companies, and uh, so far they haven't really lost uh, a case. Like I sometimes, with tongue in cheek, say, um, chemical multiple chemical sensitivity is a disease invented by lawyers. Nothing against lawyers, but it just doesn't make sense. The, 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 the scenario is I was once exposed to a large amount of a chemical, and now I'm sensitive to all chemicals. That just doesn't make sense. It is uh, uh, now in, in, in some instances that I investigated, people reacted, and they reacted to a lot of chemicals, but they were asthmatics. You know, if you have asthma, Clean, cold air, I mean absolutely clean, cold air, can and will trigger an asthma attack. Mm -hmm. So does clean air with a chemical, perhaps even an, an irritating chemical, uh, does that uh, produce an asthma attack, a, a lung uh, condition? Yes, of course. Is this multiple chemical sensitivity? No. Do we have circulating antibodies? that are in our, uh, and here doesn't, wouldn't make sense. Usually the antibiotics, uh, anti, uh, the antibodies are very, very specific. I have antibodies, I don't know how many millions in my body, against poison ivy. And I'm highly sensitized to that, but I don't react, virtually no reaction to any other chemical. So even though I was once overwhelmed and I have that condition in my body, um, you know, it doesn't make me... Uh, sensitive to all the other ones. And from a biochemical uh, and physiological standpoint, it just doesn't make sense that one chemical triggers all the other ones. That just doesn't seem to, it doesn't make sense to me. As an industry, is the field of industrial hygiene growing or do you think it's shrinking? You know, that is a good question. Unfortunately, uh, the department from which I graduated um, at the, uh, from University of Pittsburgh um, is, for all practical purposes, closed. They they uh, they closed the occupational medicine department and they closed basically the industrial hygiene department. There are a couple of people, but we don't have a program anymore where we 
you know, where I learned, I was in the chemistry laboratory and we, we did sampling and we did microscopy and we did electron microscopy and uh, we had lab reports. That's all is gone. So that is not a program. They have a couple of courses. Now, why is that? Well, probably if there would be a huge demand for industrial hygienists, I would say that even a, a, a university, an academic institution says, hey, we're going to go after that. There are a couple of programs around, um, but I, I I think it's probably it's it's pretty even, and it, that has something to do, and for better or for worse, and that has something to do with lawyers. You just you just can't get caught uh, having chemicals in your workplace and then trying to tell to a judge. That, you know, I thought it was everything was all right. We never took a sample. We never did uh, that. But according, you know, my opinion was that everything was okay. And they said, hey, you're an engineer. Uh, you don't know anything about physiology. No, you don't know anything about toxicology. No, you don't know anything about. So that will not stick. So it's, I think out of self-defense, we still have it, but I don't see it growing. Let's put it that way. Dieter, what we're going to do now is we're going to pause for our roundup. Uh, we're going to thank our sponsors, and just please hang on. We still have several other questions for you. Sure, no problem. Okay. Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IEQ industry subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dry Ease Products providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Peter, have any of your views changed since you have been our technical advisor on IAQ Radio? Uh, well, in a way, yes, I guess. I, I, I'm, I'm glad, or I'm, I'm glad to hear that my services are still needed. I, uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, some people ask me questions when I teach the classes, and I, you know, I've been doing that for literally for 40 years, and. Um, uh, I have become perhaps a little bit more patient <laughs> with people who don't have my background. So it has changed over there. Um, uh, I added uh, what I didn't learn at the University of Pittsburgh when I was a student and or a professor we, in the occupational health department. We didn't talk about building science and, and, and wetness and wet buildings and wet basements and any of that. And, uh, you know, I have been around a lot of people in the last, my God, it's about six years ago or seven years ago. Yeah, that's right, at the turn of the century. And I'm glad that I added that one uh, to my knowledge. And I'm glad to see that I can use principles which are used for, quote, industrial hygiene for indoor air um, uh, issues. Dieter, you know, someone with your experience, you know, you've learned a lot, and, you know, sometimes the learning is, is painful. Can you provide any tips to our listeners on lessons that were learned, uh, you know, in industrial hygiene and then possibly with expert witness testimony? Well, you know, you gotta, you got to read a couple of magazines. Well, today that's relatively easy on, uh, on the computer. Uh, there are plenty of uh, courses. In fact, I'm looking at the sheet over here uh, that Joe uh, prepared and the one that you prepared. 
there are about another 50 questions over here, all of which are good, mm-hmm. and that maybe I have to talk to Joe. Maybe there is a need to have a, a, a one-day course or something like this uh, where we go through all of the, the basic stuff which you really need to understand it, uh, what, what is going on, that you look at the right uh, uh, literature. You know, I, I use the documentation of the threshold limit values, which is published by ACGIH, American Conference of Government and Industrial Hygienists. They, have, they don't only publish a number. There are monographs written. Some of them are 30, 40 pages thick where they go through the toxicology and the experience, the industrial experience, you know, over years. That's where you learn something. Uh, I use, on occasion, I use, and I just did, and you know that I was working on and I called you. Uh, I use uh, the Internet. I use the toxicological information which are available from the EPA. I use the, uh, uh, the uh, toxicological and, and, and practical information which is available from OSHA. I have very good friends at OSHA, and if I, if I, uh, I have their telephone numbers, and I call them and I say, hey, guys, I have a big, big question over here. I don't like to read uh, the, the Federal Register. <laughs> I'd rather have it interpreted for me by somebody and they give me a reference. So I think there are a ton of things, and the more I think about it, and we run into this when Joe and I are teaching these classes, that there are a lot of topics uh, which really should be part of a curriculum or the understanding of an indoor environmentalist, but we just don't have time to do that in two or three days uh, there. So maybe we should put on a sampling course and a basic industrial hygiene. I would gladly, I, I, I can prepare something like this, and most of it I can rattle down from experience. And there are a couple of other things where I would have to sit down and put it together and make it pliable and uh, digestible for other people. We've got a question actually from one of our listeners. The question is, it seems that Europe is more aware and advanced on industrial hygiene and indoor air quality issues. Why is the U.S. lacking behind interest in research, or is it caused by lack of funding? I, I think it's the funding. I think it's the general perception. I think in Europe they are more, we are interested on how big our houses are and, and so on. I think in Europe they are more conscious of environmental issues. On the other hand, you know, I, worked, uh, I worked in Europe and I kind of know what's going on in Europe. And I think some of it is a little bit of propaganda because... Uh, there are some top-notch scientists over there. There is no question about that. Fraunhofer Institute in Berlin, Berlin, is just unbelievable whom they have over there. Uh, but um, I think in many instances, and I know that also from friends who are in industrial hygiene, they, have, they work for big companies over here in the United States, and they have to go to Spain and Italy and Germany and France, where they also manufacture under a big name uh, uh, here from the United States. And in many instances, um, uh, they can learn something from us. Uh, As far as buildings are concerned, I think the building structure is so much different, and it is changing, unfortunately. They they don't have problems, too. But in the old days, uh, the building structure... You just didn't have any mold problems because of the structure of the building. I remember the house in which I grew up. If my mother wanted to hang a picture, my father had to bring a hammer drill uh, to get a nail into the wall. Everything was brick and concrete. The floors were brick and concrete. Unbelievable. That all has changed. Peter, I've got a a final question or two here, if I could. Uh, First, I want to ask real, real quickly, if you could, do you, you know, I had a, an email here that I just happened to pick up, and, and one of our listeners and uh, friends was really happy to hear we were talking about industrial hygiene and how it applies to indoor air quality issues. And I agree, we're going to have to do a lot more on this and uh, get some basic information out for people. But, you know, can you give me uh, an example of where, you think people who are doing indoor air quality issues need to learn more from the industrial hygiene world? Well, I think, and I have been in that boat, 
I think one of the things you really have to watch out for, that, that any instrument you are using and any instrument or any uh, data point that comes from one of those instruments, you better make damn well sure that this is calibrated. They will kill you in a courtroom. Instantly, they will throw you out. Keep very good record. Don't use question marks on any, I once did that. I put a question mark on there, and the question mark was a reminder for me to ask uh, um, uh, that the, 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 the plant manager where the men's room was, or something stupid like that. That page was later on taken apart, and I said, Your Honor, Dr. Weil put the question mark on here on page 28 of his report. He questions, I don't know what he's questioning, but I would like to have the full page thrown out. And uh, yeah, you got to watch out with that. It, it, it was completely innocent. I didn't try to cheat, but it, yeah, it's something stupid like this can happen. I think, I think we need, as I said, calibration of the equipment is, is mandatory. And it, it's the most, I see sometimes report, there are six or seven samples taken, 12.0 liters each or 14 or eight or two liters each. I have never been able to turn eight pumps off at the same time. So whenever I see that, the whole thing, two liters, two liters, two liters, two liters, two liters, two liters, total sample, I don't believe it. It has never happened to me in my practice. And there's nothing wrong there with 1.9 or 2.1 liters. That doesn't matter as long as you know it is right. And I think the other thing is uh, where, and we don't really teach that a lot, but maybe we should take a, a, a very close look at the toxicity of the materials and at what levels they do produce a problem. Remember, I know Joe knows that one, it's the dose that makes the poison. I can handle plutonium very, very nicely, and I can kill somebody with something lousy as acetone, which really is not of high toxicity. But I think that is one of the things uh, that is missing over there, and I don't think anybody is teaching it. That I see as a problem. Peter, can I, I'd like to finish with one uh, from my end, and that is, who would you consider to be the most influential industrial hygienist in history, and why? Well, there are a couple. Let's look at the modern times. There were a couple of guys in, 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 in Greece and in Rome. They knew what lead poisoning was and stuff like that. Um, Alice Hamilton is probably one of the most wonderful, wonderful people uh, I, I, I ever read about. I never, I know people who met her. She died at the tender age of 99 or 100, I think. Uh, Henry Smith knew them, um, knew her, and uh, Ted Hatch knew her, and I think Mort Korn also. But Alice Hamilton is certainly one. Uh, I mentioned Ted Hatch. Ted Hatch started this industrial hygiene stuff. In the 40s, he was originally a consultant. He is an engineer. He was a consultant to the military and did his first studies on heat stress and carbon monoxide poisoning in tanks. A tank gets very hot in the desert <laughs> during uh, a training. Uh, those, those two certainly come uh, to, uh, to mind. Um, I'm, I'm sure I, 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 I miss a, a couple of whom I should probably mention. But um, uh, Mort Cohen, my advisor, he certainly helped uh, uh, in this field for many, many years. He started at Harvard, came over to University of Pittsburgh, and finished his career at uh, Johns Hopkins in, in Maryland. Um, maybe you, if, if you have one uh, 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 that you are thinking of that I can't think of right now, uh, uh, give it to me. <laughs> I think you've got them. I think you got the ones I thought you would come up with, Peter, and I want to just say thanks so much for joining us today and also for all your help over the past two years on IAQ Radio. I'm going to turn it back over to Cliff to uh, wrap things up, and I, I really think um, you're right. We need to spend a little more time on this topic, and I know that some of the listeners would like for us to do that as well. Yeah, Joe, you know me, and I, know, I, I do it not because I do I need the money. I do it because I have fun doing it. I like to 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 give a little bit to the people who need it, who want it. And uh, I think that's part of my job uh, to the society. All right. Thanks again. Okay. Uh, we have two more questions for our guests, but before we do that, we'd like to thank our sponsors.
Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Dieter, is there anything that you'd like to add? Any questions we forgot to ask? Any closing comment? Uh, not I can't, I mean, there are about 20. Um, I can't really think of something that would summarize it in a, in a, in a, in a good way. Uh, and I said it before, I, I, I think if, if, you, if you are in a profession that hinges on, 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 on human health, be very careful and uh, do your homework. Uh, before you go out and, and tell people, you know, you can move into this house and I guarantee you that nobody will ever get sick in here. you got to be very careful with that. So that is probably one of the warnings that is out there and, uh, and a suggestion. It said, hey, you know, learn as much as you can before you uh, 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 form an opinion. Mm-hmm. Dieter, how can our listeners contact you? Well, I have an email address. Uh, which is my last name, Weil, W-E-Y-E-L, 11, no comma, no nothing. It's Weil11 at AOL.com. All right. Well, thank you. Before we sign off, I'd like to thank my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, the wingman, Chris Boisel, our guest host, Environmental Ann, Ann Koalecki, and our technical director and today's guest, Dr. Dieter Weil. And most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 